Agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. In our podcast, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis, we'll be presenting a series of interviews featuring federal executives overseeing various programs and overcoming challenges with innovation. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Protecting the nation and its allies entails paying attention to chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats known as CBERN. The agency charged with providing solutions to these threats is marking 25 years in business this year for what the Defense Threat Reduction Agency is up to, including work on the cooperative threat reduction sphere. I spoke in studio with its director. Rebecca Hersman. The Defense Threat Reduction Agency is really the the premier agency in the U.S. government, certainly across the Department of Defense, that focuses exclusively on countering weapons of mass destruction, providing tools, resources, expertise across the DOD uh, and the interagency in pursuit of that objective. And that is worldwide, wherever the military might be, not simply like Homeland Security, which is Homeland. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, DTRA has a global footprint. We're present in actually more than 50 countries around the world. Uh, We have forward station personnel with all of our combatant commands. Part of what we really try to do is get out there in the communities and uh, engage our partners. And across DOD, there's lots of discussions about the shortcomings, the strengths, requirements that are not there in the defense industrial base. The DIB is the DIB participant in the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's mission? And if so, what do you need from from that side of the house? Sure. You know, the defense industrial base and that that community of, of science and technology is really part of our science and technology ecosystem. We're sort of the premier agency that focuses exclusively on science and technology in the CBRN or chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear arena. But we can't do it alone. We're completely dependent and constantly interacting with all of the small and large members of the DIB as we kind of pursue that mission. And do DOD, again, has a worldwide footprint, DTRA. How does this work operationally? Like, where are your people and what do they specifically do in a given zone? Right. Well, let me step back a bit. You know, DITRA has sort of a a unique kind of posture in the department. We're both what's called a defense agency and a combat support agency. So we roll those missions together. As a combat support agency, we work directly with all of the combatant commands and the joint staff, have personnel embedded in all of those commands so that we can make sure we have a finger on that pulse. We know what they need, what kind of tools and expertise they need from us to support them in countering WMD. On the other hand, we have our defense agency role. That's where we do things like all of our capacity building around the globe. Everything we do through the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, you know, more than $350 million a year goes to direct support around the globe. The CTR program is in more than 35 countries around the world. So we spend a lot of our time partnering to make sure we can get out there and work with all of those countries that that need our help. When you look at threats, you mentioned CBERN, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear Mm-hmm. But that's not where it ends, correct? I mean, anything that's a threat to the forces would be considered under DITRA purview? Well, we really are that center of excellence that focuses on that Cyberni or, or counter-WMD role. So that's our that's our wheelhouse, you might say. But, you know, increasingly, we do have to pay close attention to what other technologies are highly enabling of that? Where are there sort of key intersections? What are the dual-use systems and capabilities that are related that we have to pay close attention 
attention to. What are the delivery systems? That's a really important part. So we look at all of that, but we do try to find that CBRN, you know, nexus where we can, because then we really know we're working in our sweet spot. I wonder how the world situation might have changed some things, especially with respect to other technologies and the intersections. I'm talking about the Ukraine situation with Russia. Arms flows have certainly increased internationally. And so you must be looking at things going along with arms flows. Definitely. First of all, you know, it's interesting coming back into government after seven years out. I wish I could say the world had gotten safer, but uh, that would not be my assessment. So we now look at China as that pacing threat. But as you mentioned, Russia as a serious acute threat. And nowhere is that more evident than in this invasion and brutal war in Ukraine. Of course, Russia has well-armed in terms of its CBRN capabilities. And part of our job is to step in with those Ukrainian partners and make sure they have the support they need from us. CTR and other activities in Ukraine, they've been partners in Ukraine for decades since the beginning of the program. And so we've done that now. We've answered more than 120 RFIs, requests for information to help the combatant command and forces there. We've provided technical assistance, training, a whole variety of things to try to make sure that we're doing our part. And has all of this caused a slight or maybe not so slight shift in budget allocations as arms control seems to be dissolving a little bit around the world? No, actually, I, I don't really think so. I mean, obviously, we'll look ahead to the budget over the coming year, and and we're going to make those incremental puts and takes as we need to. But again, I mean, this is Ditcher's wheelhouse. This is what we're funded to do. We are, you know, we are funded to be able to flex to those requirements. The CTR program, for example, is extremely flexible, has that ability to move. We have contracts in place that were designed entirely for the purpose of making sure that we had flexible contracting mechanisms that would let us go places. We're supposed to be nimble. We're supposed to put tools in the hands of operators and policymakers and to do it quickly. We have a long track record of that. So no, I don't think so. All right. Let's discuss the information environment for DITRA because aside from the formal networks that you have to operate the agency, I imagine given the nature of Suburney type threats, which can be nation state actors or just freelance terrorists or whatever, then you need kind of an information flow of what's going on below the surface in the world. You know, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a very important focus area for the agency. You know, increasingly, we have to think about this information environment, this information system that we're in. It's really like a domain and it's contested, right? It's highly competitive. The United States has to try to operate when we're actually under direct threat in that information environment. And DITRA has been, unfortunately, at the forefront of that. We have been heavily targeted by Russia um, in terms of our entirely benign and, and public health oriented biological you know, threat reduction program. You know, they've just kind of targeted that and tried to kind of suggest there's malign activities um, underway when there aren't. But we know this is just part of the world we're in now. And so we are determined to build an information resilient agency that can support our partners, that can operate in that environment, and who we can protect our partners, but also protect our people from those types of information attacks. So we have a big initiative underway. We'll be standing up a new office, and we recognize this as part of the future. And if we don't stay strong in information, we won't have the trust and confidence of our partners around the globe. And this new office will be called what? And 
give us a little bit more detail about the particulars there. It's going to be called the Information Resiliency Office. That's really important to us. You know, our idea is that we want to be strong in the face of these attacks, transparent, public, open. That's what we are in in the information environment. We can be trusted. Our information is solid. Our technical expertise is the best. And that's what we want to bring to people. So we are going to have that strong posture going forward. We're going to be training our partners when we go into countries to work directly and make sure they understand, hey, this is a tough environment. It's part of what we do. Don't worry. We've got your back. So the Resiliency Office will be focused on the technology of protecting information networks or? Thanks. The the office is actually have several lines of effort. We'll be supporting across a range of activities, partly to make sure that we retain the kind of knowledge and information advantage that we need, that cognitive advantage to to prevail in this kind of highly competitive environment. We're going to be doing a lot of training and support to our partners, especially when we are doing capacity building efforts. How do we make sure that our partners understand what's out there in this environment? We'll be developing technical tools to make sure we can recognize what's happening out there in the information environment. Can we see an attack coming earlier? Can we distinguish more carefully between reputable information and information that might be generated, computer generated or otherwise? How do we do that? How do we communicate it? So they're going to have several lines of effort underway. We're just at the early stages, but we're excited to get it going. And I just want to go back over one of the basics. You mentioned partners repeatedly. Partners could be private sector actors. It could be other government agencies. These are people that can be outside of the Defense Department. Yeah, you know, I was uh, thrilled to see in our national defense strategy, the reference to partnering is so fundamental to what we need to do. I got to tell you, this part, this is in... DITRA's DNA. We've been partnering from the very beginning of the agency's creation, which I should add was 25 years ago this year, so celebrating our 25th anniversary. So the partners are international. We've built those over time, but they're also across the U.S. government. We work closely all with all of that broader counter WMD community, whether it's, you know, in our various interagencies, State Department, DHS, Interpol, international partners, OPCW, all of them, we have those relationships in place, but also on private sector, industry, multiple university consortia. So we are really used to doing that. And that's, I think, the key to our success. And let's talk about training of your people, and I guess to some extent the partner people for the specific mission of DITRA. Mm -hmm. What are the training needs and what are some of the technologies maybe that people need training in? Virtual reality, for example, seems to be coming to the fore in so many domains. Right. Well, you know, it's sort of, okay, so how do we train and develop our own workforce? I can talk about that. But also, as we, you know, training is a critical component of what we do for our entire customer base, whether those are international partners, partner militaries in some cases, or how we train, advise, and assist our own military forces. So being able to train in a convincing way way that's realistic and that kind of helps the individuals involved have an environment that may closely resemble what they'll face in the real world, that's critical. Being able to do that at, you know, reasonable cost also. So that's where, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality will really do a lot to support that and prepare it quickly. What does that mean, though? That means when we train and recruit our workforce, 
we're going to need all sorts of talent in these kind of innovative technologies, you know, whether it's AI or virtual reality. We have to get in there and, uh, you know, kind of tough it out with the rest of industry to convince people that the Defense Threat Reduction Agency is the place to go. Interesting, yes, because I imagine the threats themselves are evolving. There's new technologies applied to them. The kinetic end of things is not static either, is it? No, it's, uh, you know, look, I guess I took this job in part to, you know, because this is not boring. I've been in the counter WMD world for nearly 30 years and not in any one of those 30 years has the threat ever stayed still. It's constantly moving. Think about what we see in biotechnology just over the course of, you know, the pandemic, right? We've seen this fantastic arc of technology, um, innovation moving at just the speed of light. All of those things can be applied to good. Unfortunately, they can be applied to ill or malign purposes if you have malign intentions. So, you know, our job is to try to put them to good use and help the Department of Defense fend them off when it appears they're going to go the other direction. Rebecca Hersman, director of the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. We'll be back with more of the interview after this short break. I'm Tom Temin. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit noblis.org to learn more. Welcome back to our interview with Rebecca Hersman, director of the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And let's get back to the uh, issue at hand. I want to talk about research program that you do, talk about what the research priorities are and how you get it done, a combination of agency activity and perhaps grants to academia, or you tell me. Right. Well, our Research and Development uh, Directorate is uh, about our largest, certainly in terms of overall dollars. They execute over a billion dollars in research. They represent really that center of excellence for science and technology, kind of unsurpassed in the counter-WMD realm because we kind of bring it all together there. The key areas are technology development, expertise, That's so important, right? The people factor, that's the biggest thing we bring. But also test and evaluation. That is a very big strength for uh, for DITRA in this space. They cover the gamut from the chemical and biological threat space to nuclear issues to also innovative technologies that help work directly with our warfighters, whether it's at Special Operations Command or out in the regional commands, for them to understand what they need. But I actually think the great thing about DITRA is, is not just that tremendous research and development talent and their ability to pipe into industry and uh, academic capabilities across the country, but we pair that with our operational side. So we have a 24-hour joint operations center. We have operational elements that are forward with our combatant commands, our technical support groups. One example would be our, our reach back. So all of the technical reachback that the combatant commands ask for, our R&D folks are the experts who put that forward. So they have this kind of symbiotic relationship. I was visiting the technical support group that is part of our Southern Command just a couple weeks ago, getting a brief from them, and it was really great. They are an operational element 
Their primary job is to train, advise, and assist U.S. forces deployed elsewhere. But at the same time, they're a testbed. So I got to see them working with um, kind of emerging technologies that RD is producing, sending them out there with those guys, and they're trying them out, seeing how it works and giving feedback back to the developers. I think that operator-developer dynamic is one of the most exciting things I've seen since coming into the agency. Yes, we see this domain after domain. There are a lot of innovation, innovative ideas for a particular problem, but translating an idea or a laboratory experiment that shows promise into a reliable, industrial-grade operational component, that's not so easy. That's where you need that research and evaluation, test and evaluation, and the feedback loop to where something can work reliably in the field. And it could be a piece of equipment. It could be a process. But none of it is easily translatable from idea to function, is it? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the more we can tighten that loop between them, between the operators, and as well as with the test and evaluation component, you know, we stand a better chance of success. Now, of course, we're still going to, you know, something's still going to have to travel that valley of death, as they call it, right, to get from an idea to a technology or to an actual demonstrated capability to something that is actually now being purchased and, and kind of being put in the overall acquisition system. But Ditra's job really is at the front end of that. And so we, we really try to focus on, on that front end, as well as the test and evaluation. We have a lot of facilities that do that. I'd like to do a little lightning round with you and ask you what the major challenge or the grand design challenge is, or what's top of mind anyway, okay. in each of the areas of Suburn. Let's start with chemical. What's happening on that front? What are your priorities? What are you most trying to reduce with respect to chemical threats? You know, chemical threats are, are definitely evolving pretty rapidly, but I really think we just really have to understand how are they likely to be used. We've seen the Salisbury incident in in the United Kingdom, targeted assassinations and so forth, but we've really got to understand why do states want these weapons and how are they actually going to use them? I think that's a puzzle. And what about biological? Now we've seen all sorts of agents released Who knows what happened in Wuhan, but I think people are sensitized to the fact that it's not just a potential anymore. Right. I mean, certainly biological threats, I mean, they pose the risk of of catastrophic outcomes. I mean, we've just been living through a pandemic, right? If if Mother Nature can produce that, then imagine what could happen if you combine that with a series of malign forces. So that is a major problem. But the real challenge, I think, with biological threats is how do we make sure we're sustaining all the life-saving, important science and technology that we need, like to advance medicine and everything else, while making sure that we're applying good security practices and not contributing to the chance that these could sort of be used uh, with, with ill intent. You know, it's it's preserving the good as well as preventing the bad that you've got to do there. Yeah, someone from NIH told me a while ago that the reason that the nation could come up with a COVID vaccine in a year's time is because it was a family of viruses for which other vaccines had been developed. There was some history there, but there's like 25 other viruses that would be completely unknowledgeable about if one of them ever broke out. Yeah, I think I think that's true. Obviously, you know, this biology has a way. I mean, look how many variants now we look at. Like this is now common language for us now, but for people who looked at biological threats before, you know, variants was sort of their language. So that's what we have to to think about is the problems biology can sort of keep changing on us. There's a never-ending supply of threats. So I know that where research and development is going is is how do we come up with capabilities that can knock more than one thing down at a time? mRNA technologies are pretty interesting, right? Yes. 
they applied, you know, in this case, but they have a host of other potential applications that we've yet to even see fully realized across medicine. So I'm optimistic that if we get a breakthrough in one area, we'll be able to apply it to others. And we'll hope the good Lord wanted the species to survive at some level. And what about radiological? Well, radiological, you know, Typically, we don't see this in a in a weaponized form. But again, you know, this is one where we see we've had seen serious accidents in years past. Of course, there was the the you know horrible situation in, in Fukushima. So you you can have that. We constantly have to be vigilant. Obviously, nuclear weapons. So the use of nuclear weapons would be catastrophic. It's hard to imagine that we have to think about those problems today. But the reality is we do. And uh, and more nations clamoring toward acquiring them, not just Iran, but there's several nations now that could break out into the nuclear family like unwelcome guests. <laughs> well, we certainly unwelcome, I, I think, for sure. You know, we constantly and they don't go away to, in three days. Correct. Yes. We have to be vigilant and, and keep up all of our nonproliferation efforts. That's something DITRA has been doing for a long time. You know, we work both on, you know, preparing our warfighters, but we also work on, you know, those opportunities to cooperate in arms control, in threat reduction, in stability risk mitigation. We need to be ready for that, too. And I think that's part of what we need to do as we prepare the agency for the years and decades ahead. Yeah, that's really an important point. All of the work is not simply technical responses to threats, but really threat reduction in the environmental sense, human relations, diplomatic relations, national behavior. Right. Well, you know, you've kind of taken us back to the human capital piece. If we don't have the people, whether those are the people with the arms control expertise, you know, I have a whole group that what they are prepared to do is to execute our responsibilities under various treaties to conduct inspections, treaty monitoring, and a host of verification activities. I have linguists with unique skills because they can apply, they know all of the technical terminology to pair with that. People who, you know, are going to be some of the only people who've looked at and actually been to, for example, Russian nuclear facilities as part of inspections. So that's a talent. Those are experts that we have to protect, but that we also have to think about, well, what does the future look like? What kind of experts do we need then? Do we need to think about arms control in space? Is there more we can do in that biological realm? What else can we do to not only prepare to prevail in the wars we have to fight, but to actually prevent them. And that's that's part of our mission, too. And just a final question to bring this around. Anything further to say on the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, the CTR? Absolutely. You know, CTR is a centerpiece of the agency's work. It was part of our beginning 25 years ago. It's been part of everything that we've done since. And I think it'll continue to have a a really bright future. There's a lot of discussion about what's the role of CTR going forward. So much of our our threat reduction work will continue. But I think we'll be increasingly looking at how do we engage in dual use? How do we improve cybersecurity and its intersection? I talked about those intersectional technologies with the CBRN space. How do we make sure countries have the ability to investigate and attribute if they're attacked by chemical or biological weapons? How do we improve our cooperation with international organizations. So there's some exciting things we can do going forward in in that program. And they'll work in partnership with activities we're doing on over-the-horizon arms control to anticipate future needs so that when, you know, the country's ready for some sort of activity in the future, the technology and the people are there to support them. My guest has been Rebecca Herzman. 
director of the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. To hear this interview again or share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Insights. I'm Tom Temin. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network.